All right, so uh, September 26, 2010. Um, it was a normal day for me. It was, uh, it was a Sunday, uh, which for me was a very busy day. Not only do we have normal church on Sundays, but I was doing college ministry at the time. And so our college ministry met on Sunday nights and we had a big worship service for the kids. And so uh, we would have our, a long full day of several worship services. And then for us to go back that night and have more with the kids, it was just a long day for me. And so uh, went back to church that night, had our worship service, stayed late talking to college kids, uh, they're messed up. So for you seniors, I, I'm parents of, of seniors to be in college kids. Trust me, when your kids go to college, for some reason, something happens to them and they just get messed up. Um, and life is changing and, and all that. But it's, it was fun. It was good. I go home that night. It was pretty late. My wife was actually still up. Uh, she stayed up until I got home and, uh, the next day was going to be a big day. The next day was a big day and I knew that. Uh, and so, uh, we say our good nights. I go to bed. I get up the next morning and just start my day off. I get ready for work. My wife and I, we have our coffee. We're talking. We're hanging out. And it gets time for me to go to work. And uh, as I get ready to leave, we do our normal thing. It was like, hey, I love you. I love you back. I love you more. love you more. No, you're Snoopy. No, you're Snoopy. No, all that kind of stuff, right? And so we say I love you. Or actually, I say I love you to her. Hey, I'm fixing to head to work. Love you. And I got to go. And she goes, okay, we'll see. No, 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 no. I love you. I love you back. She goes, "Mm, I don't know about that. Okay, let's try this again. Hey, I'm fixing to go to work. I love you. I'll see you a little bit later this afternoon. Do you really? Okay, woman. I don't know if you know how this works. I say I love you. You say you love me back. Let's try this one more time. Listen, I'm leaving. I don't have time for these games right now. I got to get to work. I'm already running late. Hey, I love you. Got to go. We'll see. Okay, so I go, I get in my car. I'm just sitting here thinking, okay, what did I not do? I know I did the laundry. I know I washed my dishes. I know I did all these different things. I'm, I'm doing good. I'm trying. I'm making efforts, right? I'm taking baby steps. All right, listen. So I get to work about 10 o'clock. I send her a message. Or I call her and say, hey, just want to let you know. Love you. See how your day's going. She goes, all right, thanks. I'm like, do you not have anything that you want to say back to me? Do you not want me? Do you not want to say that you love me? Because listen, I'm dying here. I love you. She goes, we'll see. A little bit later, it goes on about noon. I finally call her again. Hey, just want to know you love you. Hope your day's going well. And, you know, I'm thinking maybe a little time goes by. What kind of trick is going on? What's happening right here? She goes, yeah, you, you say you do. And I just like, man, it just keeps building. I don't know what's happening here. And so finally about 1 o'clock, I haven't gone home for lunch or anything at this point, and I get a text message from my phone, and it's one to myself and my wife. Both of us are recipients. And it's from my mom. And it says, happy anniversary. Man, and so immediately I call, and she's like, I hate your mother. You know, he's, listen, 13 years, and I could not believe I forgot our anniversary. Like, I mean, listen, and here's what's crazy. My wife, she cares less about that kind of stuff. I'm all about, like, it's your birthday, let's celebrate, you know, let's have a party. Let's do all these things for anything that's fun, like anniversaries. She's like, ah, big deal, it's just marriage, whatever. You know, but me, I'm always like, no, we got to celebrate, But yet she was just like, nah, it's no big deal. But anyway, I tell you that story for a reason. And that's because of this. Because so often the very things that we want to remember and hold on to, the things that we we, we know, like I knew my anniversary was that next day. But for whatever reason, life took place and I forgot, right? And, and today we're talking about a passage that I think we all know very, very well. I think we know this passage. We've heard the story. We know that Jesus died for our sins. We know that he hung on a cross 
But yet, for whatever reason, the reality of what took place for us so often is just gets lost in the everyday life. It's something that we just don't really think about that often. It's something that, that should resonate with us deep inside of who we are often, and yet it's the very thing that kind of, oh, yeah, I forgot Jesus died on a cross for me. And so what I want us to do is I want us to see an aspect of his death today. I think there's something that we're going to see and something that he accomplished when he died that maybe you haven't thought about before that I think I hope brings it into a reality for you that doesn't, that isn't casual anymore. Something that you go, man, I'll never forget this. I'd never want to forget what he did for me. And it's so much more than maybe what you've thought in the past. And so what I want to do before we get to the actual passage, let me just kind of build up what has been taking place at this point. So Jesus spent 30 years of his life just as a carpenter, living life as we would, building things, doing things, goes to the bathroom like we do. He's a regular man. He's just doing things like we would do in everyday life, right? So Three years before this moment, though, he has this coming out party. He comes out, he's baptized, and this is his way of saying, listen, ministry is about to take place. It's his way of coming out and saying, I'm, I'm going to be a servant of God. I'm here to proclaim to the world that I am salvation here for you. And so for the last three years, he has his 12 disciples who he's lived life with every single day. 12 men just going about their business. Jesus is healing people. He's loving people unconditionally. He's doing things that everyone looked at and said, man, how could you do such a thing? How could you embrace someone who has leprosy? How could you talk to those people because they're sinners? And yet he did it. He took the world by storm. He began to tell people that he was the Messiah. He in in lingo, he didn't just come right out and say it, but he's letting them know that I'm here to give you salvation. And so all this stuff is taking place up until these last three days, and this is kind of where we're at right now, as Jesus lived this life with these disciples, loving the culture unconditionally, changing the world, taking it by storm. And then just a few days ago, Jesus moves into the city. He comes into the city of Jerusalem, and and the people begin to cry out, Hosanna. Man, they're like, man, this is him. This is the king. This is the one that's going to save us. And they are praising him. They're going crazy as he enters into the city. And he makes his way to the upper room where he has the last supper with the disciples. He gets down and does the unthinkable as he washes the disciples' feet, right? And then as he's sitting there, he begins to tell them things about what's to come, about, listen, I'm about to be taken from this world, and I don't think they understood it. He said, don't worry, I'll be coming back one day. And I don't think they fully understood that at that point. But then he moved from there and he went to the garden and he began to pray. And there, that's where we see that, that he gets betrayed by Judas, right? As Judas sells him out for a little bit of money. And then as he's sitting there in the garden and, and Judas sells him out and he gets arrested and, and Peter stands up and cuts the ear off of one of the soldiers and he pops it back on and they move him to the religious leaders into the city where he's going to stand trial. And before he goes before Pontius Pilate, these religious leaders, they begin to question him and they begin to mock him and spit on him and they beat him with rods. And they accuse him of all these different things. And as all this is taking place, the disciples are watching from, a, from afar. They're not going to get too close because they don't want to know what's going to happen to him might happen to them. And so the disciples from afar are watching all this take place as Jesus is beaten and spit upon and hated by the very men that he created, by the very men that Jesus formed in the very beginning are now the very ones who are accusing him of these things. And so then they take from that place and they go before Pontius Pilate and then he stands accused. And as he stands accused, the people, the very people as Jesus rode into the city and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, are the very ones who are now saying, crucify, crucify, crucify. And the very people that he had, he had created, the very people that he had always wanted a relationship with are now turning on him. And so Pontius Pilate gives the people what they want. 
And they take Jesus and they beat him and they beat him and they beat him. And then they take a cat of nine tails and they whip him with it. And if you don't know how a cat of nine tails works, you can look it up. But as it would lodge into the sin, chunks of flesh would come off of his bones. And then as he went, and, and I don't know how he lived through that, as he made it through that, he then took his cross and began to make his way up to Calvary. And as he's sitting there on Calvary, he, he's on the cross. They nail him up there. His knees would have been bent like this at this angle to put all the pressure on the hips, right? And his arms here are helping take the weight of what he's, what he's feeling at that time. His arms at this moment, he's been on the cross for three hours when darkness comes. And so after three hours, his shoulders would have been dislocated. His elbows and his wrists would have been dislocated as well. His lungs more than likely would have been collapsed at this moment. So for him to even breathe or to even speak, he would have to raise up as much as he could, garner every bit of strength that he could to push himself up enough to lift his ribcage up off of his lungs so that he could actually breathe or say something. And so in this moment, as this is taking place, he's, he's surrounded, and this is where it's so eerily silent because the very men that he spent the last three years with, the 12 disciples, the men that knew him the most, were absent. And so what we see here, and I think it's a very beautiful picture, is that this, that and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Guys, man, this is a very, this is a supernatural thing. I don't know if you know, the, the, the sixth hour is noon. So we're about to be at 12 o'clock noon. Imagine leaving this place today at 12 o'clock noon and you walk outside and it's pitch black. There's third-party writings about this event throughout history who said that like, literally it became so dark and not just dark over that little place, but dark over the, darkness over the entire land. So dark that you could see the stars in the sky. Guys, make no mistake about it that what's taking place in this moment is very tragic. It's very horrific, so horrific that the skies turn dark. Now listen, I've been a part of some tragic funerals before. Like I'll never forget, there's a had an intern that worked for me by the name of Colton Moran. I've shared this with the youth before. This guy, man, he was incredible. Like he was one of the, just the most incredible guys I've ever been around. He was six foot four, probably six foot five, and just striking. I mean, fit muscles. I mean, he played the drums. He played guitar. He he could sing. He could speak. Blue eyes, dark hair. I mean, the guy just like when girls saw him, they were just like, oh. Right? I mean, literally, when I saw him, I was like, oh, like, I'm serious. Like, man, if I was going to marry a guy, he's the one. Listen, I'm not going to marry him, okay? I need my job. This guy had everything. He just had that persona that people were just drawn to him. And, man, right after he graduated college, man, you just knew, like, this guy's going to do great things in life. He's going to just take the world by storm. And literally within months, he was working for the governor of Arkansas. Like, I mean, he just, he just had that persona and that charisma and everything it. People loved him. He talked. People were like, man, I just like you. I trust you. And then one night, man, he was riding a four-wheeler, and, and, and tragically, he, he, he lost control of it, hit a tree, and it, he passed away instantly. And I'll never forget going to that funeral out in West Texas. In that church, there was over 1,000 people there. You couldn't even get inside. People were standing outside just waiting to get in. Why? Because, man, he, it was such a tragic loss, and he'd made such an impact. But here's what I know, too, that when I walked out those doors that day, guess what? It was light outside. How tragic is this event? How, how serious is what's taking place in this moment that if, if the disciples weren't there to mourn him, if the people who had said that they loved him were now turning on him, if they wouldn't mourn his death, nature would. 
nature would. If we, if the rocks won't, if we won't worship God, the rocks will cry out. If we won't mourn his death, nature will. And guys, this darkness has so much more to it than, than just this, but we'll cover that in just a little bit because I want to continue on and we'll come back to the darkness in a moment. Because as this darkness set in, I hope you, I hope you can feel the gravity and the weight of what's taking place here. Because the, the, the darkness here shows us that there's something very heavy taking place. That this is not just some normal death here. That there's something very, very tragic, but also something very beautiful about to take place. And Jesus, in a loud voice, cries out, Aloha, Aloha, Lama Sabachinati, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And man, this is one of the most haunting things that you'll hear someone say. And, and, and the, there's, it's actually twofold. The beautiful part is this, is that Jesus in this moment is quoting Psalm chapter 22. If you've never read Psalm chapter 22, you need to go and read it. Because Jesus, this is Psalm 22 verse 1. And he's just going straight to scripture. He knew that the religious leaders of that day are there watching him die. And so instead of just going out and just saying, you know what, I'm not going to say anything else, he mustered up all the strength he could to, to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Knowing that these religious leaders would know this verse. And if you go and read Psalm chapter 22, you'll see that it has nothing to do with God forsaking him, but rather he's going to say, listen, life is awful in this moment, but I trust in you. And God, into the very, like, people love the movie Braveheart. Anybody ever seen the movie Braveheart? Right? I mean, it's one of the classics, right? And, and William Wallace, right? At the very end, you think he's going to whisper something, and he just cries out, freedom! Right? And here Jesus is, man, he's going down in a blaze of glory. He's, death is pending. It's, it's about to happen to him. And yet, in this moment, to all those people who, who are saying he's not who he says he is, this death will quiet his people and quiet him. He says, oh, no, no. I'm still quoting scripture. I'm going to tell you things that I am who I said I am. So don't, don't take heart in thinking that you can quiet me because of this death. No, I am the son of God. And in a very real way, he uses that moment to say to them one last time, no, I'm him. But guys, that's not all that's taking place here. I wish that was it, but in a very real way also, Jesus, the, most inner, the innermost part of who Jesus is, the soul of Jesus is in absolute and utter turmoil. Make no mistake about it that in these moments as Jesus is hanging on the cross, shoulders dislocated, elbows dislocated, hands and wrists dislocated, as his uh, uh, very closest friends have turned and run from him, as Peter has denied him three times, those who loved him the most have gone back to their jobs. The people who said, you are Hosanna, have now said crucify him. As all these people have been spewing these things towards him in a very real way, his soul is in turmoil. And the question is this, what is going on in the heart and the soul of Jesus in this moment that he would cry this out? And I think a lot of us would say, well, because of the pain or because of the cross. Yes, because of the cross. But the question is, is what aspect of the cross is causing Jesus to feel this? What, what aspect of the cross is it that Jesus says, Aloha, Aloha, Lama Sabachanani? See, there's other places in Scripture where it gives us a good picture that leading up to the cross, not just on the cross, but going towards the cross, Jesus' soul is in turmoil. John chapter 12, verse 27, if you want to turn there real quickly. John chapter 12, verse 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
He says, now my soul is troubled. Jesus says, listen, he's just moments from being taken away to the cross. He's just moments from going to the upper room and then going and living this life out that God has called and ordained him to live. And yet he says to this in a very real way, he says to God, man, listen, my soul, the innermost part of who I am, not my heart, not my mind, but my soul is troubled. And that word troubled is the Greek word terasso. And it's, it's, it to means to bring to a rapid boil. To such heat could be distributed to water that the, the water would boil instantly. He says, listen, my soul is terrasso. My soul, the innermost part of who I am in these moments leading up the cross, it's on fire. It's burning. I can't contain it. It hurts so much. He says, man, my, my soul is on fire. My soul is terrasso. And guys, again, you can say, why is it that his soul is on fire? Is it because he's fixing to be led to the cross? Yes, it's because of the cross, but it's not just the cross itself. Because there's other places in Scripture where it points to the same thing too, right? As he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane and begins to pray, he prays to the point that sweat turns to blood. And I tell you these things for a specific reason because I want you to know without a doubt that in these moments leading up to his death, there's something going on in the soul of Jesus that is so disturbing, that's so moving, that, that his soul is on fire, that it's boiling, We also see that he went to the disciples and said in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, listen, my soul is is troubled, it's grieved to the point of death, that literally I am in so much agony and so much pain that it's as if I am dying right now physically. Make no mistake about it. He is in absolute turmoil. And here's what's crazy, right? That there's, there's other stories of him that as he drew near to the cross, and these are third-party accounts, that as Jesus drew near to the cross, it says he trembled. Did you get that? Jesus, as he drew near to the cross, he shook. He, listen, this is the same man. We sing it in the very first song. I love it. That he walked on water. Not like he went fast enough where it was as if he was walking on water. No, he went for a stroll on water. The same man spoke to the storms and the storm ceased. The same man rose people from the dead. Literally, the dead rose again because he said, arise. This is the same man that fed 5,000 people with just a few pieces of bread and some fish. And then there was more left over than they started with. And yet, as he drew near to the cross, he trembles. And here's where it's kind of crazy for me sometimes, because it's almost like he's a sissy. Because when I look at his response leading up to the cross compared to my response, or the response of people who, who went before after him, I mean, like if you look at Andrew, who when he broke free of the chains as they were taking him to be crucified, he instead of running off, he ran to the cross. He sprinted to the cross and said, I can't wait to die as my Savior died. Or Peter, who said, I'm not worthy to be crucified upright, crucify me upside down. Or Paul, who said, man, I'll be gladly lose my head for my Savior. And yet in these moments here, we see Jesus saying, it seems like he doesn't want to go. So what is it that's taking place in the life of Jesus in these moments that he's seemingly fearful of what's about to happen. John chapter 1 is going to give us the answer or start to give us the answer. John 1, 1. You shouldn't even have to turn there. You probably already know it. In the beginning was the Word. Who was the Word? Jesus. Thank you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
So listen, Jesus, in the very beginning was the word. The word always existed. So in that passage, the word always existed. Jesus, we know Jesus is the word. John 1.14 says, Jesus, and the word became flesh, right? So we know Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word. There was never a time that the word didn't exist with the Father and the Spirit. Catch this. They always were together. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now, in a very beautiful way, you need to understand this. So for all eternity, there was never a time that the Word didn't exist, that the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they always lived together in this perfect love harmony. There was never a time that they didn't exist equally in this perfect love relationship. Now listen, I've been married now 19 years, right? Jesus never forgot his anniversary, right? That's how good their marriage was. Listen, if you've been married any length of time, you know that there are days that you just look at your spouse and you just go, eh. Right? I mean, not, for, for those who are, are going, I can't believe he said that. You're lying because you know it's true. Right? Now, Nathan and Catherine have not been married a year yet, so they don't know yet. But there are, there are moments in life where you just wake up and you see the other person. You're just like, man, I don't think I like you today. Like, listen, my wife's a sinner. I don't know if y'all know this or not. She's, she's a sinner. Like, I'm, she's lucky she has me. But, <clears throat> And she's got, no, I'm kidding. We all, listen, the reality is, is that in, in our best relationships that we have with our spouses, they pale in comparison to what Jesus had with the Father and the Spirit. It was always perfect, always loving, always as it needed to be, always what ours should be, right? Always perfect. Catch that. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is going to keep giving us a picture of what's happening here. 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you want to go there, I'll give you just a quick second. I'll take a drink. Okay, now remember, perfect love relationship forever. It's always been perfect, always love. He, who's he? God. Made him, who's him? Jesus. He made him who knew no sin. He made him who knew no sin. Jesus never knew sin. That word for know there is, is, is an experiential. It's an intimate type knowledge. So Jesus never knew sin. He never experienced sin. He, he was never intimate with sin. Now, that's not something that you and I can say. I don't know about you, but I've been very, very intimate with sin in my life. Right? Anybody else been intimate with sin? Okay, three people being honest. Thank you. Man, we, we, we know sin well. We've lived closely with it, too close at times, right? We've known it well. Jesus never knew sin. He never experienced it. He, it was the very thing he despised the most. But it says, he made him who knew no sin, catch this, to be not like sin, not to put sin on his back, to be or to become sin. Man, there was a shirt that was so popular in the 80s, and, and, and it was a picture of Jesus with big muscles, which I'm sure was so true. And he had a cross on his back, and it said, sin of the world. And he's doing push-ups with the sin of the world on his back. And that is the furthest thing from the truth because Jesus did not put the sin of the world on his back. He became those things. So every type of sin that you could ever think of for all time. So every rapist, every murderer, every lie, every cheater, every, every, every adulterer, every sin that's ever been committed for all time and for all time to come, he became those things in those moments. So if you have ever felt the guilt and the shame and the sting of sin in your life and what that felt like in the pit of your soul, imagine Jesus in those moments taking all of that at one time for you and for me. He became those things. 
He became. He, he was one who was never intimate with it, but now he is those things. Mark 15. We're about to wrap up. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Aloha, aloha, lama sabachthani. Jesus mustered up every bit of strength that he could to raise his ribs up off his lungs so he could say this real loud. And as the darkness covered the land, we're going to see here that what's taking place in this moment, at this very particular moment in time, is that the perfect love relationship that Jesus had always had, had always existed in, this perfect love, harmonious relationship with the Father and the Spirit, as he became sin, as he became those things in those moments, and as he was going to take the wrath of God for you and for me, that the relationship that had always been perfect was now severed. Ripped in two. In a very real way, in those moments, that love relationship, it wasn't neatly torn. It was shredded apart for you and for me. And that darkness is symbolic of also what is taking place on the inside of Jesus is an external expression. That as he became sin, the darkness, the very thing that he hated the most, as he became those things, the darkness was symbolic of that. And the darkness was symbolic of this too, that in that moment, for God to appease the sin of the world, for, for Jesus' blood to be shed for our behalf, his wrath had to be poured out on Jesus in those moments because sin had to be punished and so in a very real way, that darkness is symbolic of the frown and the sadness of God, knowing that he has to take an innocent person, his son, because of our sin. Now, here's the beauty, and here's where we're ending with. If you look at the end of this passage, and you read on, starting in verse 35, he says, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, raised up one last time, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. You see, the curtain of the temple in that day, it separated the Holy of Holies. That's where God dwelled. That's where once a year, the high priest and only the high priest could go behind that curtain, 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, only the high priest could go in and he would slaughter an innocent lamb and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of God to appease God for all of his sin. No one was allowed to go in there. It was said that if you walked in, you instantly died because you couldn't have access to God. Yet, here's what's happening. And Nathan, you can start... Start heading up this way if you want. As Jesus' relationship with the, par, the, the Father, this perfect love relationship was severed in two, at that exact moment, the curtain that separated us from a perfect love relationship with the Father was torn in two so that you and I, because of Jesus' separation from the Father, now have instant access to the altar of God. And here's the thing that makes me sad today. We say we want revival. We say we want these great awakenings. You know how those things start? When God's people say, man, I am flawed and I'm messed up and I'm going to take access. I'm going to use the altar that you've given me freedom to and access to now to come and bear my weight before you. 
We are ashamed that people are going to judge us. We're afraid that people are going to look at us. The very thing that Jesus said, man, I'm, the very thing that caused Jesus to tremble so that we could have access to the altar of God, freedom. We go, hmm, I don't know. Somebody might look at me funny. My question is this. How casual, how casual have we become about the very thing, the very access that he gave us that caused him to tremble? 